He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. And the statutes that he gave them. Um, it's uh, our Lord is such a good God, such a gracious God. Uh, he knows that we're a forgetful people. And so then and even now, he knows that um, without tangible, uh, without a tangible means, that forgetfulness turns into uh, ignorance. And so he graciously points out that he's a good, sustaining God, that he never leaves us when we call upon him by referring to the pillar of cloud, which was a demonstrative event, but an event which we, as well as David, look back on. In Psalm 77, David is a forgetful man. He goes to sleep without thinking of the Lord and, and engages in insomnia. And it's when he reviews the history of God's dealings with his people, particularly the pillar of cloud, that he remembers the works of the Lord. He's reminded of the peace which has been established in his heart. and His eyes close to sleep. So with that, I would encourage you to listen to the rendition of the pillar of the cloud that Pastor Prouty will be preaching this morning. Amen. It is uh, encouraging uh, week by week as I get to know more of you both here and at the uh, open table times and I'm uh, uh, very thankful for the encouragement uh, from all of you. It's, uh, it's appreciated and it, it's helpful. Um, so uh, thank you once again. Please uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. I will be reading from Matthew 4.23 through 5.12, and then we will focus in on Matthew 5.20, I'm sorry, 5.6 for our sermon. Matthew. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, this is God's word, it is his perfect word, it is his infallible word, it is a gift to us that we might know him, that we might love him, that we might be encouraged by him, that we might be convicted in our hearts, and that we might grow in grace. Hear God's word. And he went... Throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And to repeat verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, perhaps you recall Ahab, uh, king over Israel. And scripture tells us that one day Ahab was out in the countryside and he saw a vineyard. It was the vineyard of Naboth and he wanted that vineyard. He had a great desire to possess that vineyard. Somehow his life was lacking and was not complete unless he possessed that vineyard. I mean, he, he was the king, so he owned lots of lands. It wasn't that he didn't have any possessions, but somehow he didn't have that vineyard. The problem Well, Naboth was a righteous man, and he would not part with his family's inheritance. So Ahab told his wife Jezebel, Jezebel had Naboth killed, and Ahab went and took possession of Naboth's vineyard. Simple as that. Well, perhaps not. Now, do you think that Ahab was satisfied with Naboth's vineyard? Do you think he got up the next morning and said, Ah, I have Naboth's vineyard. I can live at peace. Well, obviously no. And I think we can guarantee that his heart only drove him into more despair. Scripture says of Ahab, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. And I think we can guarantee that there is a direct link between Ahab's passion for possessions and the evil that he did in Israel. And you notice it says he sold himself. You know, that's a, that's a pretty good description of the demise of the heart that pursues wickedness. It is to lose self. See, righteousness leads to peace. Self-centered wickedness leads to the loss of your very life, both now and for eternity. You know, here is the problem. Our hearts long to be satisfied. Wars are fought because some ruler hungered and thirsted after other lands, more power, more money. Divorce is rampant because one person or the other hungered and thirsted for someone else. Nelson Rockefeller was once asked, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. The problem 
with sin, with all sin, is that it promises satisfaction, but delivers only misery. Scripture says of Eve, when she saw the forbidden fruit, she saw it was good for food and a delight to the eyes, that it was desired to make one wise. And so she took and she ate and misery set in and she died. And can we just observe that human nature has not changed in all this time? Good for food, a delight to the eyes, desired to make one wise. These are the desires of a corrupt heart. And they cannot satisfy. And so the question for you and me is this. Where can the human heart find real satisfaction? Where can we find peace? And the answer repeated over and over again is in God himself. St. Augustine famously said, Our heart, O Lord, is restless until it finds its rest in you. And, and that's true. The tr- creature can find no rest and no comfort except in the Creator. But note this well. The promise is that the creature can find satisfaction in the Creator. We need to hang on to that promise. In Isaiah 45.19, there is an amazing verse that says this. I did not speak, this is God speaking, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is right. You see, God created you and me that we might know him, that we might love him, that we might experience being in his presence. He says he didn't speak in, the, in secret in some dark land. No, he proclaims openly. He comes directly to us with his word and with his spirit. And he says it is not a vain thing. He did not say seek me in vain. In other words, he can be found. He can be known. And he wants us to find him and to know him. Psalm 27, 8, this is David speaking, he says, You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. Now I can tell you that this is, this is my prayer, and I hope it's your prayer. And that brings us back to Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they, and I think we should read, they only will be satisfied. And by the way, did you notice that this verse did not say that those who seek satisfaction will find satisfaction? To seek satisfaction, that's just to seek out of the corruption in our own hearts. It says, they that hunger and thirst, they that seek after righteousness, After God himself, it's those that shall be satisfied. 
So I want to consider this verse in, in four parts. The context of the verse, which is the gospel. And second, the righteousness of God. Third, the hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness. And fourth, the satisfaction found in God and God alone. And so firstly, we consider the context of this verse. In, back in verse 423, it says, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So what we have in the Sermon on the Mount in Jesus' teaching is the gospel. And this tells us something about the Beatitudes. We should view the Beatitudes as promises from God. These are promises of what God will accomplish in your life. You know, sometimes we look at a list of character traits like we can find here. And, you know, it can be overwhelming. How can I ever live up to such a thing? How can I work hard enough? But you see, that's, that's not what we should be thinking when we look at the Beatitudes. We should first be looking at the righteousness of God and His promise to conform us to the image of Christ, which includes the character traits of the Beatitudes. You know, I've worked with uh, recovering alcoholics up in Wellington, and I always, always have to say, the gospel leads to a good life, not a good life to the gospel. Somehow, how, somehow these guys just think, if only I can make myself good enough. And, and what a burden to bear. It's well beyond what we are able. No, it is the gospel. It is the goodness of God. It is the righteousness of God that draws us to him that leads to a good life. I recently came across uh, J.B. Phillips' translation of First uh, Peter 5.7. Uh, in my ESV it says, Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. J.B. Phillips wrote this. You can cast the full weight of your cares upon Jesus, for you are his personal concern. Now what a, what a blessing. And it's true. Every one of you who calls on the name of the Lord, who belongs to God, who have been adopted into his family, are his personal concern. And, you know, not that we're not called to duty and to persistence and growth, but always looking first to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You know, I, I preached on 1 Corinthians 13 a while back, and it, it's very interesting Every description of love in that chapter is a verb. When it says love is patient and kind, see, these are the action verbs of love. But in this chapter, in the Beatitudes, every character trait is an adjective. We can think of this as the inner character of someone converted by the gospel. This is the inner character of what drives the outward actions of love. You 
Jesus begins in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the idea is that only those who know their great helplessness will seek for the Lord. Those who know they are in no condition to rule their own lives will seek Christ as ruler in their lives. In other words, it's only those who are empty who can be filled with Christ. Those who are self-righteous have no need of a Savior. And then Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That is, those who know they are spiritually poor are those same ones who mourn over their sin that separates them from God and from His righteousness. And then thirdly, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness means essentially an inward wrought grace of the soul, which accepts God's dealings with us as good and right, and therefore accepts them without disputing or resisting. It is an exercise of trust toward God. You see, the opposite of meekness is self-assertiveness. The meek person is content to be with God, is content to be under God's care, and so is possessed with a quality of gentleness in life. And so, are you seeing a pattern here? It is those who are poor in spirit and only those who can be filled with Christ. It is those who recognize that they are poor and empty, who mourn for the sin that separates them from God. It is those very same who are meek and who accept God's rule in their lives. And then coming to verse 6, it is those same that filled with God have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, the gospel is no different here than throughout the scriptures. Ephesians 2.1 And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were once dead. You were poor in spirit. You were empty. Without Christ, we are helpless. And even under the dominion of Satan. And in our fallen state, we are so dead that we cannot even desire the Lord. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The problem is God is only satisfied by perfect righteousness. In Matthew 5.48, Christ says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, how does that work? It works only by the righteousness of Christ. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now why is Christ's burden light? Well, it's because he picked it up and carried it himself. That he died on the cross in your place. That 
You don't have to work up to be a good enough person that Christ himself completes the good work that he began in your life. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, the hunger and thirst for righteousness is a gift from God. God did not say that we would be saved and then he'd just simply set us off on our own to sink or swim. You are God's workmanship, created in Christ for good works. That is, created for righteousness. Now consider your life. Is your heart consumed by a hunger and thirst for righteousness, that your life might become a source of good by the power of the Holy Spirit? The gospel in the Beatitudes is this, empty to be filled with Christ, to hunger and thirst and pursue righteousness in our life. And so secondly, we consider the righteousness of God. What is God's righteousness? Now, have have you ever thought about right and wrong uh, without God? I've been asked by college students, uh, sometimes, uh, is something right just because God says so? And they, they, sometimes they say that almost mocking. Like, oh, so what if God says so? Well, the answer is absolutely yes. Something is right simply because God says so. The very idea of there being a right requires a standard by which we can measure right. In other words... There must be a transcendent standard of right and wrong. And that is found only in the very nature of God himself. God is the source of righteousness. You know, it's interesting. uh, C.S. Lewis once said that wrong can't be wrong even in the same way that right can be right. You see, right comes from God's very nature. It it stands alone because God stands alone. Because God is self-existent, as Nels told us. Wrong, on the other hand, is always a corruption of right. It cannot stand on its own. It is a parasite. It is a disease. It is a corruption. It is a destroyer. And by this we know that the hunger and thirst for righteousness is a hunger and thirst for God himself not for some abstract philosophical standard God is the very standard and this tells us something it tells us that without God without his standard there would be only chaos now the uh, 
a couple verses further on in Matthew, it says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, how can this be? How can a fallen, uh, sinful human being be salt and light on the earth? Well, only by the filling with the Holy Spirit, by the guidance of God's very word. Can God be salt and light in the world through his believers who trust in him? Psalm 1830, this God, his way is perfect to the word of the Lord proves true. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. God's righteousness is that by which God is perfect and unchangeable. But there's, there's another way to think about righteousness. And uh, it's perhaps the, what we think of most often. And I, I would call it simply the beauty of God's holiness. It is the righteousness of God reflected in his law. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. Perfect, sure, right, pure. This is the righteousness of God's law. And so in Psalm 96.9 it says, O worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. You know, this world is such a dark place and, and we are witnessing it now, uh, perhaps, well, we are witnessing it now out in the world. Especially Proverbs 8.36, all who hate me love death. And oh, for the beauty of God's holiness to shine his light in the darkness of this world. And this leads us to another view of righteousness. It is the righteousness of the gospel. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the righteousness by which God saves sinners while remaining absolutely righteous. And how does God do this? How can God clear the guilty without compromising his very righteousness? And, of course, it's only by the perfect atonement of Christ. Only Christ can bridge those two worlds. It is the unique beauty of the gospel that Christ actually died in our place, that Christ redeemed sinners, that Christ imputes to us his own righteousness. The gospel is full of the righteousness of God. And so we see that God is righteous in all of its fullness. God says of himself, I am merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, God is the very opposite 
of the fallen sinful world. He is the opposite of the cruelty to which a fallen human heart goes. God is righteous and so we hunger and thirst for his righteousness. And so thirdly, we do consider the hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, the the grammar in this passage is quite striking. First, the words for hunger and thirst don't just point to, well, it sure would be nice to have an afternoon snack. No, the hunger and thirst are the hunger of starvation and the thirst of dehydration. Literally, to be in pitching toil of hunger and the suffering parch of thirst. The point is, life depends on food and water and spiritual life depends on righteousness in the same way. And, and then it's, uh, it's amazing, the words for... Uh, Righteousness, oh, I'm sorry, the words for hunger and thirst are uh, active participles, meaning that it's a continuous uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's not something that just uh, is a one-time thing. This is a way of life. And then righteousness is a definite uh, accusative. It means that the hunger and thirst is for all of righteousness. It means that there can be no corner in life left alone. There can be no stone unturned. Now I hope you're asking yourself, is there any corner of my life that I have left without righteousness? Any stone that I have not been willing to overturn? You know, what what happens when someone suffers gnawing, hunger, parching thirst? Well, their focus narrows. They can think of, of, of nothing else. You know, if you just had uh, breakfast, well, you can think about a lot of things. But if it's been many days since you've had any food at all, then you're going to think about one thing. Hunger. Thirst. See, this is the picture this verse is trying to give us of life. Of a single focus on God. Of something that blocks out all the distractions so that we can hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, because that is the very source of life in God Himself. Righteousness is so fundamental, so important, that not only is it not a good idea, it is impossible to live the Christian life and to focus on other things. You know, we can see some of this laser focus in Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, You know, this is not just a wishful thinking. Oh, I I wish I was righteous. He says, no, this is the passion that gets an athlete out at five in the morning, working out, running, pressing weights. It is the passion by which Paul says he pummels his body. It is a hunger and thirst that drives us 
to righteousness. You know, by the way, what, what is it that kills a righteous hunger and thirst? Well, it's, it's a lot of junk. And a lot of junk leads only to sickness. You know, consider some of the junk that we ingest from the entertainment industry. I am convinced that Satan rules in the area of entertainment. Video games, movies, and many other areas that you could tell me about. They are designed to divert your passion from righteousness. They are designed for the very nature of a sinful heart. 2 Corinthians 6.14 For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Rhetorical questions. The answer is obviously none. No, the hunger and thirst is, is designed to narrow our focus on God and on God alone. Now it's worth stopping to consider here your appetites in life. Do they reflect a hunger for sin or a hunger and thirst for righteousness? We must shut down all activities and passions in life that lead us astray. Jesus says, don't let the empty passions and desires for sin take you down. The hunger and thirst for righteousness is an urgent matter of life and death. Now, fourthly, I want to consider being satisfied in our hunger and thirst for righteousness. And satisfied in this verse is a passive. It means that you're acted upon. It means that it's something that God does to you, that God satisfies you. God does the action. And and clearly, all who call on the name of the Lord will be satisfied in God's righteousness in heaven and for all eternity. What we long for on this earth will be a reality in heaven. Psalm 27, 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord and that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. You know, God, God graciously gives us a foretaste of our eternal satisfaction. He gives it to us right here in worship, in communion, and the fellowship of the saints, in meditating upon his word. He gives us to us in our chance to love and to serve others. We get a taste of the satisfaction of God's righteousness. These are the things that must sustain us in a dark world. And without these things, every one of us would quickly fall. Attendance in worship is not a small thing. Fellowship with your brothers and sisters is not a small thing. It is absolutely vital. But there's another way that God satisfies us in our hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he satisfies us even in the midst of persecution, trials, and sorrows. You see, everything that God does is good and right and perfect. Everything. Even when God brings trials and sorrows, everything that God does is perfect. 
It is righteous. And so we can face trials in the promise that Jesus will never leave or forsake us. In the promise of knowing that God has adopted us into his family. Of knowing that God calls us his own. And in this we indeed experience satisfaction in God's righteousness. Now let me, let me see if I can illustrate this. Uh, Elizabeth Prentice. In the uh, mid-1800s she suffered a weak body. Her life was marked by severe headaches insomnia, physical pain, depression. And tragedy first struck her life when she was eight years old when her, she watched her father die. And at that time, uh, well, he died of tuberculosis and tuberculosis was a painful way to die. And this set her life on a course of anger and tantrums for many years. But she also had the benefit that she watched her father deal with this in faith. Her father wrote at the time, There can be no such thing as disappointment to me, for I have no desire but that God's will might be accomplished. That was his hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you can hear the trust and the confidence in God in those words. And years later, as a mother, Elizabeth Prentice faced this same trial again. Shortly after the birth of her third child, her newborn baby died. And a couple months later, her only son died. She wrote at the time in her diary, Here I am with a worn out body and empty arms. And oh, we can hear and feel the sorrow in those words. But it was out of this tragedy that Elizabeth Prentice wrote the hymn, More Love to Thee. Listen to some of these words. This is my earnest plea, more love, O Christ, to Thee. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now Thee alone I seek, give what is best. In her sorrow, her heart and all of her prayers turned to Christ. Oh, that she might love Jesus more. Oh, that all the corners of her life that were empty might be filled by God and be filled by God alone. You see, she was satisfied with God as she hungered and thirsted for the righteousness in a world where death is real. And of course, without God, what, what would she have? Without God, nothing would have meaning. Her suffering would be merely the random happenstance, happenstance of a corrupt world. But with God, she knows that it is God that is at work for his glory and her ultimate good. And it is God who loves her. And it is God where she can find real satisfaction in righteousness. And I can say that every one of us will need this kind of satisfaction in life. For every one of us still lives in a world where death is real. Now I have a question. 
how did Elizabeth Prentice grab hold of the promises of God? And the answer is by faith. All that we receive from God comes by faith. We receive Christ by faith. We receive the gospel by faith. We receive sanctification. We receive all of his promises by faith. You see, she could not understand what God was doing. It was, it was beyond what she could comprehend. But she knew that God was good and righteous. And so she could turn her faith to him and receive satisfaction in his goodness. Satisfaction is found in God alone. You know, I, I correspond with a, a man in prison. I've, I've been doing this for about four years now. And last year, he, he wrote me a letter, and this is what he said. He said, Brother Brian, I would rather stay in here than get out and not do right. Now listen to those words. If it's a choice between freedom and unrighteousness and prison and righteousness, this man wants righteousness. He has come to hunger and thirst for God. And so he doesn't want anything getting in the way of that hunger and thirst. He goes on to say, I want to stop trying to find a way to circumvent difficulties. And if any of you have dealt much with, um, well, with criminals, that's a characteristic of their life. He says the problem with an easy life is that it covers the need for God. See, he is rejoicing that he knows that he is poor in spirit, that he is empty, that he can be filled with Christ, that he can long for the righteousness of God. And by, by God's providence, he wrote this last year, and a couple weeks later, he was denied parole. Uh, but this year, about a month ago, he was granted parole. And by God's providence, this, this afternoon, I'm going to be driving up to Canyon City. And tomorrow... Tomorrow morning he will be released. And uh, it will be a good day of rejoicing in God's righteousness. Let me just conclude with this. Revelation 22.10. The very last chapter of the Bible. And he said to me, as the angel said to John, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. For the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do righteous, and the holy still be holy. The point is this life is going to go on. The evil will do evil in this world, but the righteous will do righteous, and the holy will be holy. The Christian will live by faith, waiting for the day when all things will be made right. Second Peter 
He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, that is this present world, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And that's a good question. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt and they will burn. But according to the promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, in which righteousness will dwell forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, Lord, we ask that you would touch our hearts, that you would touch our lives, that you would give us that hunger and thirst for righteousness, that it might be the single focus and the drive of our life. And Lord, we are so grateful to you that someday we will see your righteousness in all of its fullness. And Lord, you have ordained by some means that it will take a myriad And a myriad of your children, having gone through many kinds of lives, all adding their voice together to bring you glory and praise. Lord, we are thankful that you will count our voices among those that praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.